Support for Design Matters Media is provided by Wix.com, which puts the creative power of building dynamic websites back into the hands of designers. As anyone who has spent time in a WYSIWYG platform knows, what you see isn't necessarily always what you get. On the flip side, for some, it's far too easy to get lost in code and lose the forest for the trees. Wix.com allows you to find your own personal sweet spot and take control of your site with their drag-and-drop editor, hundreds of advanced design features such as retina-ready image galleries, custom font sets, HD video, and parallax scrolling effects, and even serverless, hassle-free coding for robust websites and applications. With Wix.com, you have total control of your web design like never before. So join Wix's brilliant community of designers, artists, and creatives at large around the world for free and ask yourself, what will you create today? This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 14 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Kaki King, who is playing this week's theme music, about performing and composing. Ultimately developing my own voice as a writer in an instrumental context, that's the hardest thing to do. Here's Debbie Millman. Rolling Stone has called Kaki King a genre unto herself. And indeed, Kaki King's genre of bewitching guitar, propulsive rhythms, and unearthly vocals is a great big world unto itself. She's been writing and producing albums of great diversity for over a decade now, both solo and in groups. She has collaborated with the Foo Fighters, and she has scored music for movies. Recently, she's been collaborating with designers Georgia Lupi and John Maida. We're going to hear about that, about the path of her career, and maybe, if we're lucky, a song or two. Kaki King, welcome to Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. It's great to be here. Kaki, your wife has said when you first met, she told you that you were cute, to which you replied, well, you ought to see me in a panda suit. So tell us about the allure of Kaki King in a panda suit. (laughs) Um... I had just come back from Japan. I had bought a panda suit for my dog, who is a wiener dog. He now lives in Atlanta with my parents. So I think I said, when I see you, I'm going to bring Harvey, the dog, in a panda suit. And she said something along the lines of the only thing cuter would be, I can't remember what she said, but I just responded with, you should see me in a panda suit. And did she ever? Not yet, but it's on the docket. Okay, good to know. We'll need to see pictures of that. Uh, so you mentioned your parents being in Atlanta mm-hmm. with, with Harvey. With Harvey. Uh, this is where you grew up, and you started playing guitar at age four or five because your parents thought children should take music lessons. Yeah. Um, and you've said that you can't recall a time when you didn't know how to play the guitar. Yes. What are your earliest recollections of the instrument? What was the first song you learned how to play? Mm, I remember... Learning how to play Frere Jaca, the da 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 twinkle, twinkle, little star was up there. I had a four-string guitar that was Isn't just, that a ukulele? It's No, 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 it's not at all. It's the top four strings of an actual guitar. Ukulele be, is tuned differently. And I took lessons from a woman named Maxine, and I remember having to put my foot on the little footstool. It was classical guitar lessons, but I'm like five. So there's, there's not a whole lot of great repertoire, <laughs> and I wasn't very good. But I could I could do it and I could, you know, get through the recital, which was kind of now that I have children I'm like, whoa, that actually is pretty impressive. So yeah, that my earliest memories are being actually in a tiny soundproofed room with another woman. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> with my guitar. Uh and um I, so I do have those memories and then I and then the other memories are of, of my dad. He would play guitar and he would go and take a blues lesson then he'd come home and teach me He's like oh man I learned this cool thing it's called the pentatonic scale and I was like wow um so yeah those are some of my earliest memories and did he encourage your guitar playing because he loved playing guitar I why think so. why not piano because he was cool 
my dad was like, eh, why doesn't she take guitar lessons? And it was, you know, under the guise of it being classical guitar. But I think that he, my dad loves music more than anything. And I think that he just thought, man, eh, why not? Let's, this was all in the realm of like gymnastics and swim and, you know, the other things you do to your children. And a guitar was the thing that just kept sticking. I understand you saw Fleetwood Mac play on mm. the Mirage tour when you were four years mm-hmm. old. So how did that happen? Did your parents take you to a dad. concert? Yeah, it was my dad. So he, it was like you and your dad, let's he, go see Fleetwood Mac? He took Mac. me to see stuff like that, yeah. It was at the Civic Center. And all I can remember is Stevie Nicks' hair. It was of just course. unbelievably... <laughs> Why would anybody ever think of anything else? It was a sculpture of the 80s. It was like a, just a... If you could take one item of the 80s and have that representative, it would have been Stevie Nicks' hair. Now, I would think that Lindsey Buckingham would have made more of an impression on you. I was his... four. And I and I was far away. <laughs> okay, I think that my enough. trajectory in life is that I wanted to be Stevie Nicks, and I ended up being Lindsey Buckingham. Oh, mm. there's something kind of poetic about that. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you were nine or ten, you recalled that all the boys at school started getting their first guitars, mm-hmm. um, but you could already play. So at that point, they thought you were cool. But you thought at that point that you were going to be a drummer. Oh, yeah. Why a drummer? They're just infinitely better. You don't still think that, do you? Yes. You do. I love the drums. Ranking instruments as far as what I would want to play professionally would be like drums, 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 bass, guitar, guitar. I just am better at playing guitar. So that's why you play it. That is why I play it professionally. Do you still? I I play drums every day. Interesting. (laughs) So when did you decide, okay, I'm not as good a drum player as I'd like to be or as I should be, so I'm quite good at guitar. I think I'm going to take that path. Not a decision. So I, throughout college, played both, and I stole the key to the old typing room that was down in the basement of my dorm, and I put a a drum set in there, and I had bands that I was in, and we'd play. But I was always like the drummer or the bassist. Guitar was my thing. It was my private world. It wasn't something I shared with other people. How come? I was playing solo instrumental guitar, and it was difficult and challenging, and I was writing songs, and it was like I would have to book a gig in order to share that. Whereas socially playing bass, drums, or like rhythm guitar, whatever, in another person's band was like the cool, easy thing. That was easy and fun, and it wasn't a commitment, and it was just, you know. But guitar had sort of slowly become this thing that I did privately and and it wasn't until life happening that it became the instrument that I now am known for. And did you ever learn how to play accordion? I know that was something you wanted to do. I gave away my accordion a couple years ago. I did not ever master the accordion, but there is always time. You've said that you had a rough time as a teenager. You were a gay kid in the South attending a religious institution, the Westminster Schools. Yes. And you were the kid with the pixie haircut in the midst of a gaggle of what you've referred to as budding Stepford wives. (laughs) Sorry. I mean, some of those chicks are super cool, I'm sure, but, you know. But you said that you were horrifyingly lonely. Yes. And had a bad sense of self. Yes. How did you manage? I think music was part of the thing that saved me and the like amount (laughs) of escapism that I required on a daily basis just to exist was just astronomical. Like what what do you mean by that? I started listening to Britpop music which was this thing that was happening in London in the mid-90s and I would transport myself there and I was this cool chick in a band playing this music I was like there I mean I I was not in my house in Atlanta with weird things happening in my family and weird people at school that didn't I mean I just wasn't present I was in fantasy or in escapism in some sort of self-medication at some sometimes I mean I was like gone and that is unfortunate. I would not recommend this to anyone, but that's kind of how I got through. When did you stop self-medicating? Oh, uh, I was, I don't know, 31 and went to rehab. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, after graduating, you headed north to New York University. Why did you choose NYU as opposed to a more music-centered school like Berkeley or Juilliard? I was not encouraged to pursue a music career. Even with your dad so passionate about music? My dad does not wear the pants in our family. 
It is my mother who... The lawyer. They're both lawyers, but my mother... Well, that's a funny story of how my mother is the reason my father's a lawyer. So, you know, look, it's difficult to look at your child and to be someone who doesn't understand music at all and say, sure, apply to a music school. I also... I don't think I really knew what that meant, being a musician. I thought that I just was musician. Like, I played music with people. I wrote songs on my guitar. I was engaged in it in, at every level. And it didn't seem like studying music was a thing I really wanted to do. I just wanted to get out of home. I wanted to leave Atlanta. And it wasn't like... You know, I lived in a subdivision with no sidewalks. It was beautiful and woodsy, but, like, there were no people um, for me to connect with. And I craved that, and I wanted to be somewhere where that looked easy. And I also did know that, you know, there was music happening in New York City, so there was part of that. Um, But, yeah, again, escapism just get me out. At NYU, you were in a program in which you created your own major. Mm, What did you choose, and what were you expecting at that point you might want to do with your life? I truly expected to become a lawyer. Yeah. I truly I thought that what I would do because I was raised in a law firm and I had done all kinds of jobs for my parents. I, actually when I was graduating I assumed I would take a year off and then I would start applying to graduate schools for law. For law. I mean, I think that many aspects of the law fascinate me and like what? The setting of precedents and how a society depends on laws, even if they're terrible, to function and how we can change laws to make things better and how laws protect people from themselves. My parents practiced criminal law for most of their career and then they switched to bankruptcy law. So two types of law that really can help a person that's fucked up, you know, save something, salvage something of their life. Yeah. So I thought that would be my trajectory. Also, I literally had a law firm to inherit. I mean, it was it was like, yeah, you know, you've gone to New York, you've had some fun, but, you know, unfortunately, you're going to have to do this. And and that did not happen. Can you really imagine yourself being a lawyer at this point in your life? No. Well, my sister, my younger sister took that path. She went to law school. She took over my parents' law firm. And they're all in this little cabal of lawyering and managing. And it's, <laughs> you know, like I'll call the law firm and I'll be like, can I talk to Karen? And then they'll be like, oh, I'll just give you to your dad for now. And then I get my mom on the phone. You know, like it's uh, it, I'm, I'm catch up with the whole family. Yeah. While you're at it. <laughs> Why not? In what you imagined was going to be that year between your undergraduate degree and your graduate career, you started playing music in the subway. There's a very specific reason for that. Tell us. 9-11. So my, I took the summer semester, my graduation date of the the end of that semester was September 12th. So September 11th happened. And suddenly I went from, okay, I'm getting out of school, I'm gonna figure it out. There's no jobs, the city is a mess. I mean, I witnessed 9-11 from my rooftop. I mean, it was like, you know, many New Yorkers, it was so traumatizing and disrupting. So I'm now, uh, I've recently moved to Brooklyn. All my friends are in Manhattan getting around the city is impossible. There's no walking into a place and getting a job. That's just, you know, and so I, I needed, I needed money. I needed more than anything connection with people. I'd always wanted to busk in the subway and I started playing and it was... It changed everything. What did busking teach you? Stamina. Great amounts of stamina and the ability to focus despite whatever is happening in your environment. And at that point, had you begun to develop your style as a musician? Yes. At that point, most of my first album was written. So yes, some of the very distinctive parts of my style, and I say style meaning more compositional, even though a lot of people focus on the technique. The technique is the means to the composition. A lot of that had been already very well established in. So you, at that point, started to work with the Blue Man Group, and you became a musician for this trio of blue men. Um, So I have a couple of questions. Oh, sure. So so that gave you some money and to travel, and how did you get the job with Blue Man Group? Seminal week of my life, I'm I'm 22 turning 23, is the week that I get signed to a record label, and uh, had an audition with Blue Man Group that I actually, and I actually got the job. Um, I had a friend who knew Ian Pei, who is the son of Ian Pei. He was the original drummer. And 
I'd met him and at some point given him a CD that I had made and he emailed me and he said, there's auditions in two days for Chapman Stick. I've never seen a Chapman Stick. And um, so, but it's a, it's an instrument you tap on. So he's like, go and, you know, call so-and-so and tell them I said I sent you and it's fine. And I got the first audition of the day, which is like, who, this is going to be bad. And I remember walking out of my audition saying, from now on, I'm always going to be able to tell people that I auditioned for Blue Man Group, right? Oh, you know, yeah. like yeah. you just don't, you don't ever dream as big as you should. And I got the job. Which was amazing. So I am working. I'm 23, and I have been signed to a record label. How did you get the deal? How did you get the record deal? Okay, so that's a whole... Okay, I'm in the subway. I'm playing guitar. People are really grateful. It's post-9-11. People are grateful for life returning to normal, musicians in the subway being something that feels normal. And people keep saying, can I buy a CD? Can I buy a CD? And I was like, it wasn't a decision based on, I really feel like I need to put all my material on a record. It was literally like I could make 10 bucks off of every sucker that asked me this. Sure, I'll make a CD. So I made this CD of all the material that I had been recording and working on. And it literally, and I tell, and I, I tell people this all the time, that if you make good work, it can have a life of its own that is totally beyond you and out of your control. And that's exactly what happened. So I made this record and gave it to friends. And a friend gave it to someone at the knitting factory back when it was in Tribeca. They contacted me and they said, hey, uh, like what you do, can you come in and play a weekly residency? That, and we will pay you, which is just, I mean, even in the early 2000s was unheard of. And um, so for two months, I played this weekly, you know, late night gig at the Knitting Factory for which I was paid $100 and I brought CDs and I would sell them and I could afford to take a cab home. It was amazing. From there, a guy bought my CD. I had my contact info on it. He emailed me. He said, hey, I've got a record label and I manage artists and I think you're cool. And he managed me for the next 12 years. That's amazing. It is. It's the Hollywood story It's like I feel terrible because I feel like there's never there's like never the struggle story of like I tried this and I tried this and no one cared and it was awful. Well, you alluded to some struggle a little while ago, which I could ask you about, but I (laughs) if you want to talk about it, we can. I'm not going to push. So that's the that's the story of the the record being. So the record I get you know I get this record deal. I'm working at Blue Man Group, and I'm 23 years old. And this is kind of a problem because I'm not prepared for the things that are about to start happening. Your first two albums were solo acoustic efforts spotlighting your talent. This is what New York Magazine wrote about you. New York Magazine said something? Yeah. With both hands curling over her instrument's neck, she hammers, plucks, strums, drums, and slaps at frets, strings, and body. The effect is of sculpting rather than of playing music. And on All Music, Tom Jarek wrote, Simply put, Khaki King possesses the most original voice on the acoustic guitar in a generation. How do you handle that kind of response? Um, 23 years old. Yeah, it's hard. Because there's also the counterpoint to that, which is, I'm living in Brooklyn with 5,000 roommates. I don't have any money. I'm touring and I'm opening for jam bands and I hate my life. Why? Because I'm opening for jam bands. I but mean, you're opening uh, on tour for musicians and for audiences Yeah, that gets old quickly. No, really. I mean, it's hard. It's hard work being an opening act. Really hard work. And I wasn't in my comfort zone. People that wanted to get really high and listen to some band noodle for five hours. Just It just wasn't my scene. And it you was... had already been through rehab at this point? Oh, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's so much later. I didn't even drink till I was 25. We'll talk about that, you know, on our terms later, Debbie. It's, not, it's, it's a very boring story. How did you manage what I can only imagine were the expectations people were putting on you? There weren't really expectations placed on me. The only expectation that I had placed on myself was to always play well under whatever the circumstances. So there was never a moment where I showed up to the stage and I phoned it in or I played the easy stuff or the, you know, I I always had a, held myself to a very high standard of, of performance. Did you ever question your ability? No. Have you ever? No. 
I mean, I think that I could always have, I always knew that I was good at guitar in a way that a lot of people weren't. I don't, I didn't let it go to my head, but I knew, and I, but I think what distinguished me and what I wanted to focus on more than anything was the writing. The playing is technical, like it can be taught, it can be practiced. The writing is very important and, and ultimately developing my own voice as a writer in an instrumental context, is the, that's the hardest thing to do. So I think that maybe the technical prowess, I knew that I was, you know, a, a hot shit player, but the writing part didn't hit me till later where I thought, okay, I really, I really sound like me, even though it's just one guitar playing. You've said that the six string guitar is your absolute truth, that for you, the guitar is infinitely interesting. You know that you'll never master it and you'll always be challenged. While there are those who would argue that you have mastered it, what do you consider to be mastery? What is mastery? There, there just is none. I mean, there's so many routes that you can go with this instrument. There's so many paths it can take you down. I don't. I think that when people say things, these. I think that prob- probably the worst thing that was happening to me as a young person was that the, the things that you read, the quotes, the. Rolling Acc- Stone calling yeah, you, putting ac- you on the list of the new guitar yeah, gods. Yeah, the accolade. I mean, like, that's ridiculous. That's just a, that's just insane, bad copy. It's just... Why? Why do you think that? Because I think that it limits the scope of other people doing doing something on the guitar by saying, here's the top ten and everything else is junk. Or, I mean, the implications are really bad. And the implication that, you know, a genre under herself, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's just that it's like you've hit the ceiling and there's nowhere else to go. And for me, there is an infinite world of possibility on this instrument. I've played it forever, I know. The hyperbole was just upsetting because it wasn't sort of measured with something like, and she's working hard to do more good work. Yeah, I think the most ridiculous thing I read was somebody referred to you as Bootsy Collins meets Van Halen. Like, what the hell is that? <laughs> Can you imagine Bootsy Collins and Van Halen in a band together? Like, that would sound like just garbage. Or a mashup. <laughs> you know, it was, a mashup would be fun. But if those two assholes tried to make a band together, can you? It's just, yes, it's nonsense. So I, I didn't know how to really process that other than to ignore it. You have likened touring with just you and an acoustic guitar as almost a martial arts-like challenge. And you talked a little bit just a few moments ago about the resilience needed for being an opening act. But you've said that holding the audience's attention for 90 minutes with that format is the hardest thing you've ever done. I'll rephrase that and say it is when I am at my best. When I am taking on the biggest challenge that I can and making it work. And when it works, it is, I, I, can't, um, I can't come up with anything more difficult and more satisfying. You had real success with your first two solo acoustic efforts. But after those two albums, you decided to mix things up a bit for your third album, Until We Felt Red, which included more musicians playing on the record in addition to you singing. Mm. When I first became aware of your work, you were doing the solo acoustic work. So when this album came out, I was astonished. Were you so mad? No, I actually really liked it very much. (laughs) But I was surprised because... When you weren't singing in your first two, I thought, well, maybe she has a bad voice. You, you're actually a fan. Yeah, I am. Oh a my fan. god, this is so cool. <laughs> I saw you. I prob- where probably probably at the knitting me? factory because no. I don't remember where I saw you, but I saw you in 2004. No shit. For absolute sure. Yeah. Was it just me? Yeah, just you. <gasps> you had dark brown, long hair. Yeah. Yeah, and you're a baby. I was like, how does this woman do this? It's crazy. It's wow. crazy. Will you play us a song right now? Play us a song. Yeah, play us a song from Until We Felt Red. Oh, God. Well, you know the song I have to play. Okay. This is a song called Jessica. It was written about a camp counselor. She had a thing for me. I didn't really know what to do with that, but I had a thing-ish for her, and I wrote this song. I'd be a 
That was beautiful. When you started to write songs with lyrics and sing them, did you worry about how vulnerable that might make you? I know that a lot of the lyrics from those early songs were taken from diary entries. Yeah, it was all about trying something new and still keeping the six-string guitar first and foremost, you know, so as long as I had that, like it was like became my security blanket, then I realized I could try a lot of other things. So that record, it's funny because Jessica, that song was written when I, I wrote it when I was 15 and put it on a record at 25. So I think it was like, you know, okay, Debbie, you talk about brands. I'm going off brand. My brand is solo acoustic guitar. What's going to happen when I change this up? But I also knew that the pigeonhole of that world was sort of I I did feel like the walls were kind of closing in and you know khaki king solo guitar khaki king solo guitar I mean it just it seemed like I and also honestly I just felt at the time I remember saying I don't think I have a acoustic guitar record in me right now I just don't think it's there so let me go and be in Chicago for a month and work with John McIntyre who was the producer on this record who's in tortoise and seeing cake and amazing and um try something different so that was all about trying something different but keeping the guitar at the forefront. And and even that, I mean, that record's, you know, half vocals, half instrumentals. You stated that songs that are purely instrumental come easier to you. Yeah. Um, you said that lyrics can, in fact, diminish a song. Uh, yes, that's true. In what way? What did Balzac say? That is too, that, that which is too stupid to say can always be sung. I mean, I think that a lot of times songs happen and I'm listening to the intro. I'm like, this is great. And then someone starts singing and I'm like, oh, I wish they had just not sung at all. I am just, I gravitate towards instrumental music. I gravitate towards vocalists who just create their voice as a new instrument. I'm not, now, this, that's not to say I don't love certain, certain singers. Um, who do you love? I mean, I can't say it. It's just too embarrassing. But oh, I lo- I mean, now I- you have to. <laughs> like, I love Morrissey. I mean, well, he's like two weird comments away from like tinfoil hat Infowars <laughs> guest. Like, he's just become a horrible person. But no, I like. I think that I love Morrissey, and I love Jarvis Cocker, and I love PJ Harvey, and I love Katie Lang. Is amazing. Like, I didn't really appreciate. I mean, there's there's certain singers that I absolutely loved and appreciated. But, yeah, for the most part, I think the ability for instrumental music to, again, escapism, getting out of oneself, taking the emotional part of the brain to another world, that is what instrumental music does. And lyrics ground me in a way that sometimes I don't want. As you've evolved, you've also been involved in film work. In 2007, you played all of the guitar pieces in the movie August Rush. And I remember seeing that movie and thinking... You saw that movie? I did. Um, Were you with a child? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Isn't everyone that goes to that movie with children? Um, But I remember thinking, they've ripped off Khaki King. Oh, that's hilarious. I was furious during the movie (gasps) thinking... Oh, that's so cute. They have stolen her 
style God and her music. You. And then I watch the credits go by and it's like, oh, that's all Khaki King playing. And it's my hands. I know, I know. So you had the hands of a little boy in I, that movie. Yeah. So most expensive hand job. <laughs> How did that gig come about? It's such a great story. So they I'm on tour, and I think I was in L.A. The The directors come on this—I'm I'm on a tour bus, which is, like, a weird thing for me. The director brings the movie, and they show me these these shots of uh, the actor Freddie Highmore doing— the. they've already shot the movie. The movie's done. And um, they show me the songs that they had chosen, and they show me him playing, and I'm like, it looks great. It looks perfect. He look, He totally looks like he's playing this part, and they're like, well, actually, we need this to look— better like we need it to look more amazing because they chose the wrong songs basically especially this Michael Hedges song so they chose this Michael Hedges song and he's he was always known for his amazing you know playing you know his hands moving all over the neck but they just chose the wrong tune they just chose a song that looked more like traditional guitar playing so they were like can you write an ending to this song that makes it look better and Michael Hedges is dead and he is a legend. He is a legend, and he is in the pantheon um, for people who play solo acoustic guitar. So I'm being asked to take a legend's song and to rewrite the ending. And I don't have permission from him to do this, and it's weird. So I really had to kind of wrestle with that. Um, but in the end, I decided <laughs> decided to take the money, uh, and I did the. Yeah, so I did a new rendition, and then they, the plan was like, we're going to take this, and you're going to film yourself, and we're going to teach it to the actor, and he's going to learn how to do it, and then that just didn't happen. They were like, so my, ma- my manager comes, I can't remember, I was in another recording studio, and he comes, and he's like, yo, I got to take a picture of your hands. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, yeah, just stick your hands out, and uh, here's a ruler. And I'm like, uh, okay. So he takes a photograph of my hands, and they're like, yep, small enough. So all the close-ups of the, of the hands you see are mine. So... You ended up experiencing some massive burnout after you toured for your album Junior, oh, which was a yeah. very rock and roll tour. Oh, involved yes. a lot of singing and jumping around. It did. And at that point, you considered hanging your guitar up and going back to school. You said that after the initial fun and accolades, there just didn't seem to be a lot left in music. So here's where I am not consuming any thing that has calories other than alcohol, which is not good. But I was amazingly, I mean, I played on Jimmy Fallon in a blackout. Like, I was like a really good drunk. But then it was like really, it got really bad. So yes, there was this moment of reckoning of like, I clearly have a problem. It came up really suddenly because I really, I didn't drink till I was 25. I didn't even start drinking till I started to experience jet lag. So I was traveling overseas. So it was like, bam, bam, bam. Suddenly, I go from normal person to, like, I am falling apart, but somehow able to tour the world and make records while falling apart. It was a very confusing thing. And I didn't really know what you do. I just knew that rehab was the thing that you do. So I, like, went to rehab and was like, okay, I get it. I have a problem, but it's actually this allergy. I mean, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Recovery is important, and it's an important part of my life. I've been sober for seven years, but more more importantly was, like, what do I do now? Like, what happens? What's the, like, what, now that I have to go through the world as this person that I've become without my, like, stuff that makes me feel good, what do I do? And so there's this, like, these looming question marks, and the answer was glow. You returned to your acoustic instrumental mm. form. You declared that the album wasn't actually going to do well, given yeah. the state of the industry, but you wanted to do it anyway. Yeah. Talk about Glow. Describe Glow for our listeners. Glow is my favorite album that I've done because of just the context in which it was done. And um, I had never really joined the acoustic guitar with other instruments. The, that was sort of an electric thing. So I'm up in Woodstock, New York. I'm living in the studio where I'm making Glow and... The music is just really, really good. And I really felt like my playing, like I was back somehow, like my playing was back and my stamina was back and my ability to function and think and be not in, because, you know, part of the insanity was fun. Like it was fun jumping off of amps and like throwing beer at the audience and like literally like writing my number on the key card of a hotel room 
and like canning it to someone. I mean, it was crazy. Um, it just wasn't sustainable and it, it ultimately got dangerous. So suddenly I'm like not doing that. So um, Glow was where I became an adult and the music became adult music again. Your music often has a connection to the visual arts from the title of Until We Felt Red to the show you curated in 2009 in which more than a dozen artists created thematic pieces on guitars based on your work. At the exhibition, you played your song Playing with Pink Noise with your hands covered in pink paint, providing a bit of a visual coda to the song on the guitar itself. In 2015, you've created what has been likened to a touring installation, The Neck is a Bridge to the Body. And in the show, an amazing array of images, video, animation, they're all projection mapped onto a stationary guitar, which you play, and a large screen is behind you, also filled with images. And you're playing interacts in real time with the visuals. Things like the volume of your guitar affect the elements, such as the exposure of the images. How did this show come about? I post-glow... Well, actually, no, this part of Glow, I'd return to playing alone on stage, 90 minutes, getting the audience focused at my best, etc. And I really felt awesome. And a friend of mine said, hey, you know, for all the people that aren't just super fascinated by looking at your hands, could you, maybe you should maybe make the stage a little prettier, like a lighting show. Maybe, you know, bring an LD with you and just have something that's nice. So I thought, OK, well, what does that mean? What does lighting mean? Uh, for someone like me in 2013, which, which is when this has started to develop. So I looked around and I discovered projection mapping as part of like my Google search of literally like, you know, cheap lighting for stage. And so I discovered projection mapping, which most people would associate with large architectural pieces. Um, it was like this little click, click, click in the brain. Like, what if you made this small to fit you? And what if you did this on the guitar? And then you played it at the same time. Lots of questions had to be answered, such as, is this affordable? Is this tourable? Is this stable enough of a system to work? Can I play the guitar if it's, you know, sitting on stand? You know, all of these things. And it was a long-ish time. I mean, you know, some months went by before we, I and a team were able to test all of these things. And we did. And, and I remember the moment where they had, they had been scanning the guitar and doing this 3D scan that they had to take out and then sort of put back through the projector. And I saw the guitar lit up. And I knew I had a show. Like, instantly, I knew this would be a big deal. And from there on, I started to create one. And um, I wrote a script. And upon... No one in the audience would ever know that there's a script. But upon the script was where where we were able to hang all of the elements of the show. And again, yes, some animation and some video. And I produced several of the videos. And some of it is um, created by the guitar. And my video engineer is sort of performing with me. There's a lot of things happening. And... That has opened up this totally new chapter in my life that is like, I feel like I'm at the beginning. It's it's miraculous. You were invited recently to work on a project with John Maida and the artist Georgia Lupi. And the project was to redesign Hennessy's VSOP Privilege Blend Cognac. Yeah. Super swanky. But then you composed a 200-beat instrumental piece, which Georgia and John interpreted visually mm-hmm. for the bottle label. What was it like to work on con- with a consumer brand? What in the heck? Those people got some money. Um, <laughs> I was like, this is crazy. You know, okay. It was very luxurious. It was very interesting. John was the person that got hired. And John was like, okay, creating packaging for a brand. This sounds really boring. Why don't I shake things up and, you know, see what happens? So he really... You sort of just sounded like John, by the way. Oh, yeah. You really just did. You just sort of sounded <laughs> and like the him. the way he looks around like, oh, yeah. I think that maybe this would be something that I could really make difficult for people. Um, not coming from the design world whatsoever. I have no idea who he is. And... So John May had seen The Neck, and he invited me to play as his musical guest at a speech that he delivered at the Kennedy Center. So that was how we were connected initially. But I was trying to really absorb the vibe. Like, what does this brand mean to people? And the history is interesting. And and I tried to write a song that made some kind of sense. And, um, you know, I I think that uh, ultimately the song became the visualization, which is totally Georgia, 
so my role was just kind of like a... You were the conduit. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. You have continued to collaborate with Georgia. I know. She's um, amazing. In August, you discovered a lesion on your daughter's tongue. Jump uh, right in. Yep. Your doctor sent you to the ER, and she was diagnosed with idiopathic thrombocytopenic purpura. Is that how you pronounce it? It's an yes. awful, awful word. Just awful series I, of words. It's ITP. awful. It's just, I, yes, ITP. It's a, an autoimmune disease that causes her body to attack platelets and creates random bruises all over her body. And, Kaki, I'm so sorry. Yes. Um, but well, at, I have good news. Oh, good. Well, you started working with Georgia on this other project, and then you began to record your own data in your own life, and you and Georgia connected, as she put it, to channel your stress and anxiety into a semblance of control through a meditative action that could help you and your wife make sense of what was happening. So what did you do? I collected data. Did it alleviate some of the stress? Yes. But did it make it more concrete? It made me see trends as opposed to the just daily freak out. So ITP is very rare. So your perfectly healthy kid suddenly turns up and she's like, you know, there's just bruising happen just spontaneously and you just, you cannot believe it. It's like your child's made of glass and you don't know what to do. And so um, she was admitted to the hospital. I was there with her. We had just had a baby. My wife had just given birth to our son. So they were like, get that baby out of this hospital. So we were sort of, the family was sort of divided. This is this other thing that really was the darkness, was that my son wasn't doing well. He had a heart murmur that was kind of big. And he was struggling to breathe, and he was struggling to gain weight. And it was just like, how much shit can you just put on us at the same, you know, it was everything was sort of coming apart all at the same time. And he's fine, too, which is really, you know, great. And once he grew in, I mean, his heart was enlarged, his liver was enlarged, his, it was just like, all of it was very traumatic. So from working with Georgia, I had learned how to collect personal data. And part of being the caretaker for someone that has ITP is you have to watch them. You have to look at their skin. You have to see what their skin is telling you. And so I had to have some kind of way to watch this stuff And I also knew that I was coming, I was unraveling. I mean, it was, you know, we had this new baby. It was exhausting. Cooper is, has this crazy thing. She's had several platelet transfusions. It was really, really disturbing. So data collection allowed me to see the trend and to see the big picture. And ultimately, the project became more about me than anything else because her platelet level count was affecting my ability to be sane. And that was not acceptable because, thankfully, this is a disease that you don't feel. Kids don't feel it. They're totally normal, and then they're, like, hospitalized. She didn't have fever. She didn't have exhaustion. She didn't have any fatigue. She wasn't. She was totally, completely, and utterly normal. The night before she was hospitalized, we, we walked the entire High Line from 34th down to 14th or something. And she was jumping off of the benches and, like, running into skateboarders. I mean, just having a total ball And the next day she's in the hospital. Like, it just comes out of nowhere. So the data collection itself helped me see, okay, her bruises are going away. Now they're coming back. Now they're getting a little bit worse. I should probably call the doctor. It was more of looking at trends. And then it was also looking at my behavior and my comments of, like, I just had a fight with someone about something completely nonsensical. Things were coming out sideways emotionally. So being able to watch all of the factors at play and see how they were affecting my behavior and my ability to parent was really helpful. The end result is a beautiful visualization and a song based on the data. Mm -hmm. This song has 120 measures in three-quarter time covering the 120 days that you collected the data. How is your daughter doing? So she was going down at some point in that time period and she was like 31, 26, and they say, okay, Monday we're going to give her another transfusion and we're going to start her on this really intense drug that hadn't really super been tested on children, and I was like beside myself. And Monday they tested her blood first, and she'd gone back up to 30. And we were like, okay, we're going to wait a week. And then the next week she was up again, and we just it, she just kept going up until she had hit a range where you can exist normally in your life and you don't have, you know, nothing bad's going to happen. And she stayed there for quite some time. And yesterday, 
the normal range is, is 150 to 400. <laughs> Yesterday, she was 155. Oh. <laughs> so she's, you know, grown out of it. And, I mean, anything can happen with this crazy thing. She could relapse. Things can change. But in most children, they do eventually grow out of it. That's and, amazing. Yes. That's fantastic. So I had a really long cry in the bathroom of the... <laughs> hematologist and oncologist clinic where she goes, where there are like very, very ill children. You know, every time you walk into a room and there's a child with no hair, you're like, okay, perspective. Uh, so yeah, so we're, we're okay. Good. Yeah. That sounds wonderful. I'm hoping that you'll play one more song for us. I have one last question, if, if you would play another song. You've said that your music shows a very small slice of who you really are. And you've said that art is a giant fantasy. So if your music shows a, a very small slice of who you are, what isn't it revealing? <laughs> Every, I mean, everything. I, I play instrumental guitar music. I mean, you know, it's like, okay. Did you expect to get all of the hilarious emails that I've been sending you in the past few days? No. Okay. So there's a good example. I also have this problem where... My eyes sort of like sink in here and I've got these intense brows and I've just got this like focal point of like, it's like a vortex of sort of anger in my face. So people always think I'm pissed off. Really? Yeah, this happens in photos. Well, my face has changed. Actually, my makeup artist was just like, you know, you don't look the way you looked 10 years ago. I know you know that, but your brow has moved forward. So you look angrier. (laughs) Well, does that have anything to do with the eye surgery? You were legally blinded. Yeah, I was legally blind without glasses for a while. But then I got LASIK and it was great. Okay. My point is that, you know, people see this photograph of me and they see me playing and it's just like, oh, she just must be the most serious person, which could not be further from the truth. And now I've got this, like, I slammed my face into a microphone stand the other night and I have this crescent-shaped scar. As if I didn't look kind of, like, sinister enough, now I've got, you know, let's just top it off with this... Half moon cut. <laughs> I thought your son might have done it to you. No, no, it was me doing it to me. <laughs> um, so I think, no, I think that I am not what I do on the instrument. I embody a lot of other stuff and I do, I have interests in lots of other things. I'm, I do not live my art the way some artists do. And maybe I wish I could, but I don't. And that's okay. Well, with the music that you make and create. I don't know that anyone would want it any other way, honestly. Would you play another song for us? I'd be happy to. Uh, I had written this song and I had a friend who at the time was living on Bowen Island and I I sent it to her but as a demo. And so just as the demo, um, I named it Bowen Island. And um, I think I was in Italy and someone filmed the show and then took the set list that I'd written and uploaded it to YouTube as Bowen Island. So now it's a thing. Um, And so I basically had – I was forced into calling it Bowen Island, which is a, you know, lovely name. And then then I had a, a baby to name, which is really difficult. And I was texting with a friend who actually – she's a writer at SNL. And I was like, you're a writer. Name my baby. And she was like, chocolate chip cookies. And, I mean, she was just being ridiculous. And then literally out of the blue, she goes, what about Bowen? And I was like, whoa. And I look at Jess and my, my wife, and she was – I said, what about Bowen? And she goes – Oh, that's like going at the top of the list. So there it is. There it is. Owen with a B.
Kaki, thank you so much for joining me today on Design Matters. Thank you so much for contributing to the soundtrack of my life. Oh, that's so sweet. You're welcome. You can find out where Kaki King is performing and learn more about her projects and her music at kakiking.com. This is the 14th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our new Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash debbie-millman. That's d.rip slash debbie-millman. If you want others to know about this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded live at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland. Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Wix.com. What? You have to start again. I have to start again? Yeah. Why do I have to start again? Because I just talked. I've got a sweet tooth for licorice and jelly rolls. Sugar Debbie. Hansel needs some sugar in her bowl. This is not the song. <laughs> yes, it is. This is from Hedwig. <laughs> if you got some sugar, <laughs> sugar Debbie, bring it home. I told you. I know, but I didn't All think right. you were going to do it on the air. <laughs> Are we on the air?